Hey, Tim, how's it going? Hey, it's going great. I, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm in the middle of an election cycle, just uh, flat out, buddy, flat out. This Take take it in while you can, man. Soon you're going to be Prime Minister of Canada and you won't have any yeah, free time just, left. Just enjoy it, right? Like, it's, it's like Get kids, all your blackface so in while you can. Oh, man. You know, I found a picture of me firefighting that had uh, where, I've, where I've got uh, <laughs> charcoal all, all over my face. And I thought, oh, man, is this going to get me in trouble? <laughs> Yeah, there was actually a fire chief um, that I know in in my region who was just recently suspended for two weeks without pay for a photo that surfaced of him uh, dressed as Lenny Kravitz in blackface at a private party three years ago. And, you know, his thing is that he music is his life and Lenny Kravitz is like his idol. And he he dressed up as Lenny Kravitz at this party. And now this uh, photo surfaced and he just took a two week suspension. Yeah, but the prime minister doesn't get that. He just yeah, the prime minister doesn't get suspended. No, but that's not what we want. Well, I guess we sort of want to talk about Mr. Trudeau, but really we wanted to talk about um, the father figure in in individual lives, but also in in society. Is that tell tell me exactly what you wanted to talk about? Yeah, well, you know, today I was working on my platform for kind of marriage and the family and uh, doing a bunch of research and you know uh, it just struck me how how geared the system is against the father right and and why how it contributes to fatherlessness and yeah. so you know I kind of wanted to talk about um, you know some of the underlying causes of fatherlessness and how how that shows up in society I think we've touched on it before in other yeah. episodes but um you know, it's it. We could go through some of the some of the real concrete problems um, fathers face in our society and children face uh, having access to fathers. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. And I mean, right off the bat, what comes to mind? So my parents got divorced when I was nine, and I remember it being basically totally within my mother's power to cut my father out of the light out of our lives if she had wanted. Um, yeah. And I remember being like, I don't remember exactly the f context I was told this in, but it was basically that like my dad is grateful to my mom that she saw his value as a father and didn't choose to pursue kicking him out of our lives, basically, because she basically could right. have done that as the person, as the one filing for divorce. Right. So I don't know the mechanisms behind all of that, but it was very clear apparently that she had that power if she if she so chose and right. then it makes sense that when there's two individuals who basically tell each other or one tells the other that they no longer value them as a human um fundamentally that that they don't bring value to their life anymore um that they wouldn't have a amicable relationship and they would want to completely sever ties right and so then yep right off the bat that skews towards mothers i think um i'm not sure why i think that you know there's the the mother bears the child at the young age the child definitely does need the mother um so i mean that's just where my brain went off the top i don't know yeah no i mean i think your story of um having gone through the divorce is similar to pretty much any other uh child and, and man who's gone through divorce right it, it, women really do 
hold the cards uh, if they want to in those situations. But, you know, let's start off with, by, t by just kind of framing the situation okay. right now. Um, so we know that uh, fatherless children are at far greater risk of suicide, of unwanted pregnancy, of drug addiction, of, of gang membership, of being diagnosed with a behavioral disorder, of criminality, of dropping out of school. And so a lot of the destruction we see around us in terms of all these things, uh, mental health and, and criminality and drug addiction, all, all those are largely related to um, children not having a father figure in their home. And, and there's yeah. lots of reasons for that, right? And But, the, you know, there's kind of three primary reasons that contribute to that. Uh, one is the welfare state. Uh, another is legislation. And the third is fam the family law system. And, uh, you know, the f so starting with the welfare state, uh, you know, the, the rates of um, fatherlessness uh, have risen dramatically correlated with the welfare state. Um, yeah. So you look at populations that that rely on welfare and you can see as the welfare state grows, um, fatherlessness uh, and, and actually parentlessness raises in those um, yeah. in those populations, right? Well, and, and, that, and that's be because uh, it incentivizes single motherhood by reducing the need to marriage, right? So, so yeah. in the past, if you had a child, you would need some sort of financial support. Well, now the state provides that for you, so that so you don't need a man in your life. And it also punishes low income earners that might be on welfare who choose to marry, right? Because if if they get married now, those benefits are taken away from them. So, yeah. so it's a double edged sword there. Yeah, that's what I was going to say uh, as well, is that they don't need the income because the income is generated for them from other people. Um, and I wanted to say, I mean, I think I'm jumping to one of your other points, but I think it's really important to talk about um, the state as the, the step in for the father, right? So there's this, like, the reason that young men in particular have higher rates of crime and gang involvement and things like that is because they they test boundaries, right? They want to see when you're a young boy growing up, and I've realized this very explicitly recently with my peer group, is that when you grow up, you want to test the limits of what am I allowed to do? And if you don't have a strong father figure that tells you this is the limit, then you just right. keep testing and you keep testing until you come up against the state, against the the laws that tell you this is the limit. And so you get a lot of people going to those limits. And I also think it's this, this you know, uh, welfare state, which is the more, let's call it motherhood nurturing, we should give everyone everything state, is a counterbalance to what was an overbearing fatherhood state in the past, where there were too stringent on these are all of the limits you'll come up against. So I think, um, I, but I think the major piece, I, sorry, my brain's a little scrambled there, but I think the yeah. major piece is the lack of the father, father figure naturally just has people want to test the boundaries, has them want to push the limits. And if they don't have someone in their life telling them what those limits are and enforcing them, then they test society's limits. 
Yeah. And you know, it's, that's important. It's important to understand the role of the father, right. In the the family system, traditionally it's that boundary enforcement, right. And Mm -hmm. so that's where your mom starts and you stop, right. Moms are, are kind of wired to just give of themselves completely break their bodies down like kids can use and abuse you know and, and but fathers are much more apt to say no there's a boundary there give some space you cross the line you can't do that um so that's important and and you know studies on empathy and, and empathy development um there's there's two things a child needs one is they need to experience empathy and they get that in spades usually from a mother but if, if all they ever do is receive empathy, they never get used to understanding that there are other people around them. And so that's where father comes in. And so they need that boundary enforcement that makes them aware that there are other people that you need to be considerate of that, yeah. you, that your behavior affects. And having a father in the home reinforces that tr- typically, right? And then there's the other, you know, there's an old saying that says mothers raise uh, good children, fathers raise good adults, right? Mm-hmm. At a certain point, someone has to take the training wheels off the bike and it has to encourage responsibility and reliance and taking risks. And typically that that's kind of fallen to the father. That's what they're looking for. They, you know, I can speak as a father myself. I, I love seeing my kids taking risks and going out there and, and doing things and, you know, putting caution aside a little bit and being willing, not afraid to fail. And, you know, they sometimes fall down and scrape their knee, but eventually when they master that bike, you're so proud and, and it's, it's awesome to see them do that. Right. And, uh, I think mothers are a little bit more hesitant typically they're, they want to see those child, that child wrapped in bubble wrap almost or something like that. Right. And, and you need both of those, you need, you need that almost tension between those two things. And it, because it's a sliding scale, right? You you need to completely bubble wrap your kid when they're a, a baby and a toddler. But yeah. as they approach adolescence, man, they, that bubble wrap then becomes a cast that atrophies them. Yeah, and I think like you can very much see that is what's happened to the culture at large, right? So, I mean people can talk at length about like, you know, the participant ribbon, everyone's a winner, the the whole egalitarian movement of everyone is equal, because no one should be bad, or no one should fail is a problem. And I also think the idea that we just have a generation, the millennials of largely overgrown children, who don't take responsibility for themselves, but then also think that they are other people's responsibilities. So they just whine and complain, and don't have consideration for other people. I think that's largely, I mean, one, I think, you know, the factor that there are more divorced families is a big thing, but there's also this basically, let's call it systemic attack on masculinity generally, right? So I I don't know, but I, I only know from, you know, limited experience that there is this mentality even within the household that the man is somehow wrong or his approach to life is wrong. And you hear that all the time masculinity is inherently toxic or all of these other things so i think that has a huge factor is a huge excuse me factor um as well absolutely yeah you know and and some of the other um effects of having a father in the home i I read a study once about how um adhd symptoms tend to go away when you have a, a father in the home um, you know, because fathers channel that kind of 
wild, aggressive energy of boys, right? And they either meet them, they, they play wrestle with them, like play fighting and wrestling and, and just getting rough and tumble with them. Um, helps them to, again, that, that helps them determine boundaries, right? Because at a certain point they push it too far and they get hurt a little bit. Right. Yeah. And then they realize, okay, they have to pull or back. Or they hurt someone bit. else. A little or they bit. hurt someone else a little bit. Right. Yeah. And, and that, that is a really important thing in, in, in kind of tamp, um, channeling aggression towards more positive means. And, and another thing that's, that I found interesting when I look at studies on addiction, you know, the, the treatment for ADHD is typically a stimulant like uh, Adderall or Ritalin. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and studies on addiction show that, uh, you know, fatherhood absence is often linked to stimulant addiction. So cocaine and, and cigarettes and all these things that are stimulants, um, tend to be, because that's kind of what you're missing when you don't have a father in law, you don't have that guy doing that, that, that high energy play with you and challenging you and going out and doing sports and that sort of thing. Um, but the other thing that I think happens too, when there's not a father in the home is that there's a lot more stress on mom. Right. Yeah. And th she has a lot more things to do. Like she, she has to think maybe about going to work part time. She has to, you know, fathers create a space quite often for moms to, to do what they love to do, which is love and nurture and, and connect with their kids. And when you don't have the father around, sometimes I think that's more challenging to do. And so is, is it any, any, um, coincidence that we see rates of opiate addiction, uh, on the rise, right? Opiate addiction is, is linked to poor maternal attachment. In other words, you don't have that strong maternal attachment, um, Th those children tend to be more susceptible to opiate uh, addiction when they get when they get older. Um, so it, it essentially replaces that maternal attachment. That's why they continually chase the dragon. Gabor Mate, uh, who's a psychiatrist at the Portland Hotel in downtown Vancouver, uh, with all the inner city drug addicts, says he's never met a severe heroin addict who hasn't had severe maternal attachment issues or childhood trauma issues. Uh, the parts of, of a, a baby's brain that lights up when they, on an fMRI, when they lock eyes in a maternal gaze with their mom is the same pattern that lights up when a heroin addict takes a hit of heroin. Now, if you or I were to take a hit of heroin, that pattern wouldn't light up we're, we're because, and, and we wouldn't become addicted, but these people are suddenly getting the thing that they've been missing their entire life. And essentially a mother's love in the form of a needle in their arm and they chase that dragon and of course it, it kills them right so I think that it's important to recognize that a lot of these things are interrelated when we talk about the the problem of the opiate crisis and and addiction and criminality and and just the de slow degradation of that kind of moral fiber in society that has a lot to do with the the breaking apart of the family which uh, is, you know, I can link back to the state. Yeah, and so I want to jump in into that a bit more. And so you're talking about you're trying to formulate like a family policy uh, or a platform. And so obviously I think like the family is hugely important, if not the most important, right? And, you know, there's many reasons that it's been it's degraded recently. But I think a big portion is that the state says that you don't have to really take responsibility for your own family. The state will take responsibility for it. Yes. We'll make sure it's well, your kid's well educated. We'll make sure the kid has, uh, we'll force you to make sure the kid's vaccinated and, and whatever else. 
but basically they handle most things, right? right. And now we'll it's educate your child. Yeah. Um, and so there's just not a need for a strong family unit, quote unquote, a need. The child right. will live and survive with the state. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And, and the other thing it does is it turns uh, men into resource objects rather than fathers. Right. And so what some of the things that that do that specifically are uh, no fault divorce legislation. Um, so no fault divorce legislation says that anyone can leave a marriage for any reason and it's nobody's fault. Right. Well, this violates a, a key element of contract law. So uh, if I can't I can't um, unilaterally break a contract without compensating the person I've entered into the contract with in contract law. However, if a man or woman in a marriage wants to break the contract, uh, they can do that now. And sometimes they also get from the other person, right? They can well, get if absolutely. Yeah. So you know, and no, and so. And, and yeah, the, the legislation not only fails to compensate the spouse who's the victim of the contract breach, but it additionally punishes them by subjugating them to state authority and, and harsh law enforcement measures um, if they fail to adequately compensate the person who broke the contract, right? So it, yeah. it actually turns contract law on its head. And of course, this, you know, kids are usually the, the money follows the kids. Um, so so and the and, kids and, normally follow the mom and the mom so so you know most divorces are uh instigated by mom and and the primary cause is basically they're unhappy in the marriage right it's it's just unhappiness it's a feeling mm -hmm. that they get and they just they want out right so they, they there's no consequences to them they can walk away and one of the principles in family court is that the kids shouldn't uh shouldn't uh, uh, have to have a, a lower lifestyle than before. So essentially what this says is that the man now is responsible for uh, maintaining two households. Yeah. Yeah. And then you couple this as well with the fact that, that mothers obtain primary custody of their children in Canada 89% of the time. Um, and one of the reasons for this is that at the same time, this legislation called the Divorce Act in 1985 came in. There was judicial reform and education that uh, that that educated judges basically in some fundamentals of feminist theory, even though it wasn't portrayed as feminist theory. And that's essentially um, it, it, that that there's a primary caregiver for the kids that res is responsible for the kids, and that and. and instead of um, a presumption of shared parenting, right? So if there was a presumption of shared parenting, if you saw both parents as, as being important, you would take a much different approach than if you're trying to figure out who the primary giver should be. So, so now courts are asking the sort of adversarial question, well, who's the best parent? Instead of yeah. asking the question, what's the best way for the child to maintain relationships with all the important people in their life, yeah. right? And, and you would have two very different <laughs> outcomes based on those questions. And, and so it, it's this kind of feminist theory, right? And of course, when they're young, it's hard not to see mom as the primary caregiver and, and bias everything towards the, mom. Um, so they end up with the kids 89% of the time. And then, and then there's this kind of weird um, standard for a weird view of fathers, right? So 
So when fathers are at home and they're in the marriage, they're they're considered individuals who are motivated to provide for and love their children, right? But when they're excluded from their children's home because the wife wants a divorce or something like that, suddenly they're deadbeats who must be coerced into providing for the best interests of their children. Yeah. That's kind of the assumption that the courts have. And, and you know, there, there's a great, um, great book I read called uh, Ideo Ideology and Dysfunction in Family Law. That, that talks about um, how, how Canada's courts became ideologically uh, kind of possessed. But what it's done is it's essentially created uh, an in unequal application of the, raw, of the law. So, for example, the author talks about seven rights that a mother has that a dad doesn't. Mm. Uh, number one is the right to conceive a child through force or fraud. So men are obliged to pay child support regardless of whether a, a, a woman lied to them about being on birth control or pressured them into unwanted sex. So they're, they're on the hook for 18 to 20 years, regardless of, you know, there, there have been men who have been raped by women and father children or have been under the age of consent. And then when they reach the age of consent, suddenly they're on the hook for child support for the next 18 years. Mm -hmm. Um, this, the second one is the right to damage a fetus by engaging in substance abuse. So men are obligated to pay what's called Section 7 expenses, which are all the extracurricular and special expenses that a kid uh, might, might that's above and beyond normal child support. And so if, if this child is damaged because of maternal substance abuse, well, the father, again, is on the hook to pay for that. Meanwhile, obviously, if they do anything to hurt the child, uh, again, they're held criminally criminally responsible for that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the third right women have is the right to secretly entrap a man into fatherhood. So there have been some studies that show that the prevalence of paternity fraud is between 5 and 15%. The numbers are, are a lot bigger than I would have imagined. Uh, there, was some, uh, there was a study on a maternity ward some geneticists were doing trying to study heritable traits and that sort of thing, and they found that regularly when they studied this, 15% of the babies they studied, the person who thought, was, who thought was they were the biological dad wasn't the biological dad in 15% yeah. of the cases. So this means that... Um, you know, a mother can dupe a man into believing he's a bi biological child, uh, father of a child. And not only is she not criminal, she, you know, the man doesn't necessarily, that doesn't even necessarily negate the man's obligation to pay child support. Um, these men can be obligated to pay child support if they were in the child's life when they were born, if they believe they're the father. And if, you know, if they're there for a period of time, they might be on the hook for child support. Yeah. Um, so that's another right. The fourth right that mothers have that fathers don't is the right to abandon an infant at birth. So a mom can abandon their child at birth with no questions or strings attached through either secret adoption or dropping the child off at designated locations. And in doing so, they also waive any and all financial obligations they have to the child. So they never have to worry about that child again. Meanwhile, biological fathers don't even have the they, they don't have the right to waive financial obligations and they don't even have the right of first review, refusal of custody for that child. So they don't they don't even get have the right to say, hey, you know, if a mom doesn't want it, I want it. You know, it's wherever the mom drops them off that that the child ends up. 
Um, the fifth right that, that they have is that they have the right to alienate the father from his child. So a woman can keep her pregnancy secret from the biological father for years and, and years later decide to sue him for retroactive uh, child support and, and child support going forward. Um, so, and there's nothing the father can do about that. They, they, they don't have a right to complain that they didn't even know they had a child and that they have been deprived of access to that child. Um, the sixth right they have is the right to deny or disrupt access between father and child. So I think this is kind of what you were talking a little bit um, as well. So non-custodial rights, uh, parental rights of access to the child are are viewed as equal to child support rights that the mother gets for ha having the child. However, they're enforced dramatically different. Um, you know, police will not enforce access orders and mothers can totally ignore court-ordered access with impunity in most cases. Meanwhile, fathers um, can cannot ignore their child support obligations. They get they get their driver's license taken away. They can get thrown in jail. They can remove their ability to make any kind of money. They can have their lives ruined um, yeah. by this. And then the the seventh right they have is to to make false allegations against the father. So. Um, Mothers who make false allegations of child abuse or domestic violence uh, in order to gain custody advantage can expect to face no repercussions at all. It's not not uh, criminal and um, nothing happens to them. So all, all these things dramatically tilt the scale uh, um, against fathers and, and, and fathers are essentially relegated to at best being a visitor considered a visitor in their child's life and at worst just being essentially a wallet or resource object um yeah for the mom yeah i mean i didn't know i mean not, none of that surprises me that it's skewed towards the mother that way just from my cursory knowledge um but it's alarming i suppose the degree to which it seems to be skewed that way um i am I wanted, like, I don't even know how to dive deeper into any of these points, but I want to bring it back to something at the start of those points of what, like, I don't know what a libertarian framework would look like because I'm thinking that, I'm thinking that, you know, what does marriage look like when it's just like, what, what is a standard marriage contract or does that have to be negotiated out each time? Because, you know, when I think of marriage, I traditionally think of the value promise that's still associated with religion, right? That I think is, is an important piece even without religion or without God getting mad if you get divorced, right? So it's a, a, it's a promise to live a life with someone. Um, mm -hmm. But I had not thought of all of this and what this reframing would look like in a libertarian uh, society. Obviously, there has to be the two parties have to be equal and they have to negotiate a specific contract. But even I don't even know, you know, what percentage of people would take the time out to negotiate a specific contract and these sorts of things. So there would have to be sort of a default um, mode. So I think it's alarming that it's not even and, and equal. And, you know, I think it's probably a long battle to get it uh, to that. Um, yeah, but I'm just kind of interested to know, other than that, what system is top of mind? Yeah, well, I think a big part of the problem is that, you know, government is in charge of marriage. Um, 
and in charge of divorce, right? And so mm -hmm. I think a good step forward would be to privatize marriage and divorce. Um, you know, marriage happens when you go to the government and ask for permission. You get a permit saying that you're allowed to get married, first of all. And yeah. then you basically go off and just have uh, a big old party with your family and friends. And when you're not content with the marriage anymore, you can you can leave, um, you know, and if, if you're a woman, um, you can essentially leave uh, without any consequence and maintain your lifestyle. Uh, if you're a man, you, you're financially devastated, right? And that that's, yeah. again, that that's because um, divorce is also legislated by the government as well. So what I would do is again, privatize these things, you know, so no more state issued marriage permits, no more state managed family court systems that uh, apply erroneous assumptions and ideological bias and kind of homogenous rules across the legislation. Like everyone has to pay the same amount of child support, no matter what their courts are bound to do that. There's very little room to play there. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I, I, I think that, we, again, we go back to making marriages private like they used to be, and you enter into it, you know, it, it's a contractual arrangement. And so, um, you know, these, these contracts should be treated like any other private contract where you bear personal responsibility for unilaterally breaking the contract. So, you know, contract disputes could be mediated through dispute resolution or courts applying common law principles rather than legislative dictates. And then I Letters, think what you, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, um, divorce with children, I think common law courts would, would, uh, you know, uh, applying common law principles, you'd go to presumed shared custody unless custody, unless there were some mitigating circumstances. Um, and, and so that means that the child would have equal access to both parents and that would be kind of court enforced. Um, you know, I, I would make paternity fraud and false allegations of domestic violence, criminal offenses. Um, but, you know, what? like right now, rather than mar marriage is just a big party and there's no consequences for divorce. Right. And, and I think under this kind of privatized regime, you would have it would become a more serious commitment with obligations and incentives to work through through problems. If you're not yeah. super happy with your marriage, well, you know, work it's your it. It, it's your incentive. You have, you're now incentivized to work on it because if you, if you just leave, there's going to be some consequences. You're, you're, you're going to have to kind of pay for that a little bit. You're going to have to pay the, the party you're breaching the contract with. So, and I think it's an important thing around just personal responsibility, which will, we've talked about before, right? That the state does so much that, you know, if I divorce, not only will the state do stuff for me, but they'll force the person I'm leaving to do stuff for me too, right? right and right. and so there isn't this responsibility of well, I took this on myself, and you know, unless there's a really terrible circumstance that I need to get out of for my own well-being or fit like physical well-being or my life potentially, that no, this is like anything else. I entered into an agreement. There's even if the standard is okay, no. Any child you have is an 18-year agreement of we're going to raise this child in a certain way, and that's right. what we've agreed to, separate from the actual relationship between the two individuals, right? Yeah. Having a child is taking on a responsibility. Yeah, and I think that, you know, to your point about having to do up a new contract for every different marriage, you know, I think most contracts, 
you get in business, you know, like non-disclosure agreements, talent releases, all these things are generally standardized, right? There's a standardized and they come from just best practices. Over and, time, exactly. Right? They come from best practices and, and, you know, people will soon realize the, the deficiencies in their contract, right? If, if one, party gets unfairly compensated or something because you didn't think about it in the contract these things are going to be addressed over time and they'll get better and better and, and you can and amend it throughout as well that's the other thing that you probably don't have now in marriages is right. is amendments right and and right. things can change and then also if the relationship starts to change or starts to degrade you can have at the start there's also an incentive to be responsible about that happening as it's going on, right? So it's not just I'm going to, you know, hold up and pent up my anger for 10 years and then explode and get divorced. There's an actual mechanism and an incentive like a bit in a business sense to right. understand and negotiate throughout. Um, and also, if it gets to the point of needing to amend, you can have a formal conversation, which is really what most people need anyways, is to actually formalize and have the discussions they need to negotiate the relationship. Right. And, you know, marriage is a serious commitment, right? And and not a lot of people do a lot of work up front to talk about how things are going to play out in the marriage and how the arrangement's going to work. How are the finances going to be handled? Yeah. How, what are we going to do about children? All those kinds of things. Um, but if, if, it's part, if, if, if it's a private institution, then whoever's doing the marriage, marry, uh, the marriage adjudicating or the, the marriage ceremony or, or marrying you, where you're making vows to each other and entering into this covenant or this contract, they will have walked you through the fine print of the contract you're agreeing to. They they have a vested interest in making sure you both parties understand everything about it. Here's yeah. what's going to happen if you divorce. Here's what's going to happen if you have a child. Here's do we want to talk about these? Any should should you guys talk about this right now? You know, I can imagine a pastor talking with them. Let let's talk about how you're going to manage finances now because yeah. you guys don't seem to understand this part of the contract or you seem to be at disagreement. So we need to work through these things. So and it's interesting you mentioned a pastor because I have a few friends who are like fairly devout Christians and as they got engaged or moving towards marriage they had marriage counseling like yeah. pre-marriage counseling which is unheard of in any of my secular uh, friends right yes. I mean there's a difference they live together for a while first but it's not the same as committing to each other for like for life right and so it's so valuable to have a mechanism in place to have someone who knows the prompts because you're in love, you don't necessarily know what could come up and what is worth discussing up front, right? And so right. that's a hugely important thing. And I, another thing that comes to mind is actually from Eat, Pray, Love. Elizabeth Gilbert says, you know, as uh, when she was like this proud feminist who didn't feel like her dad should, you know, it used to be that the father would talk to the prospective husband. How are you going to treat my daughter? How are you going to earn a living and, and ask those questions on her behalf that she didn't think of taking that responsibility on herself when she thought, oh, my dad shouldn't be involved in my relationship, right? So it's this idea of taking that responsibility of what are all of the things projecting forward 20 years that I need to have in place and I want to make sure my partner, my husband, my wife will be able to one, have the same goals as me and two, help me implement them. And right. so like, as we detached this like sibling parent um, framework for the lack of the proper word, there's been this lack of the individual taking responsibility on themselves to do that negotiation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing that happens too is, I, I mean, you can imagine um, 
you know, a, a woman marries a deadbeat or something like that and decides to have a child with them, some someone who's just a, not a good person that she's not going to be happy with, that's a bit of an asshole or something like that. Um, you know, and, and she hasn't thought very clearly about what the ramifications are. Well, you know, if, if she doesn't, if, if this guy isn't going to be able to provide for the kids or if the contract isn't um, doesn't favor her or something like that or she leaves and now she has to bear the consequences of that because she's the one that left i mean first of all this this is treating women as if they have some agency right that yeah. as if they bear some responsibility in the decisions quite often it's like um you know an unwed mother has you know a, a one-night stand ends up pregnant and they look at that guy as the deadbeat dad um because the she, he knocked up a woman and, and is no longer around while well, no one ever talks about the, the mom making that irresponsible decision about, um, uh, about, you know, choosing to have a baby with an, with a one yeah. night stand kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And, and so it, this treats, I think women as if they have some agency. And so you can imagine as well that, that the environment around this woman her support systems, her father, her mother, her family is, is going to have a vested interest in ensuring that she, uh, think very carefully about who she's hitching her cart to and yeah. and is going to be a lot more involved in making sure that that she marries a safe guy who's going to provide who's going to honor his commitments and and all those things and she's not going to get left shafted right now that incentive also, isn't there i mean there yeah. she's going to get resources from him or the state one way or the other she's going to be looked after and and so the 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 uh, consequences or the uh, aren't as dire or aren't as um, they're they're socialized, I guess, right? Yeah, and this brings it full circle to what we started with about the fa like fatherlessness and all of that stuff. Is that when this is the case, then you have less fatherlessness. You'll have less deadbeat men who just do these things, right? Like this problem perpetuates itself, right? right. And so once we have people actually being thoughtful, being responsible about their marriage, about their children. You have children who are in these environments where they are more likely to thrive, where they are more likely to perpetuate the good behaviors moving right. forward, rather than a case where we have, I don't know what the percentage is, a huge amount of men who are criminals, who are uh, you know in prison, who are drug dealers, who are all of these other problematic things. And why is that? Well, it's because of the framework that exists right now with respect to the family and the state and right like a lot of the libertarian principles are these kind of cyclical things whereas the problem solves itself you just have to get it started right and and so this one policy change where we privatize marriage and divorce to me solves a lot of societal ills because mm -hmm. uh, now now we've put a big dent in drug abuse now we've put a big dent in unwanted pregnancies and abortions. Now we've put a big dent in in uh, criminality and behavioral disorders, um, and and we've just made a whole bunch of people um, more happy, actualized, competent individuals who who can contribute to their society. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I I mean I'd I'd honestly not thought of this at all before, right? Uh, I mean I'm not in a relationship. I've not thought about marriage generally, but I definitely hadn't thought about like a libertarian framework around it. So it's really interesting. Um, but one thing I want to highlight that I think people might have as a objection is that this will, this approach, this very, it's a, this libertarian approach, this, uh, 
will will kill romance. And if this is the type of thing, this is the type of approach. You have a contractual business like agreement with your wife. Then like, yeah. oh, there's no love. What kind of love can you have there? Or what kind of romance? And I want to say that right off the bat, that's incorrect, right? And I think that if anything, having that robust framework will allow so much love and thriving within the relationship because that's exactly what happens within an individual's life. If I really yeah. know what I value, what I stand for and where I want to go in life, I give myself the freedom to do what I like and to love myself within that um, within that context. And I also think that anyone, another big problem that is happening now, at least with young people, is that they're going into marriage purely from a romantic love. Right. Yes. So they're head over heels in love. Oh, my God, this person's the best person on the planet. They'll never let me down. I should marry them. And then they get hit with a sack of bricks or whatever the term is that. Oh, no, wait, this is a person who's going to have flaws. And oh, we didn't actually think about all of the things we value down the road. And so, like, I think that's a huge issue with young marriages now generally is that they don't have. What, what's it called? Like compassionate love. They just have romantic love only. Right. Um, and so they're, the idea that this will kill that, it's like, okay, maybe, but maybe you, I don't think it would, but also you have to have some logic and reason to your marriage as well. You, marriages that are just right. based on romantic love are more likely to fail because that doesn't last. That's like proven to not last. Yeah, and well, no, that, that's exa that's exactly right. Um, you know, we've been taught this notion by culture, by Hollywood, by uh, whatever that that it's all about romance. It's about falling in love. It's that that that's what marriage is all about. Well, no, that that happens every night at the bar. Uh, yeah. You know, it, th th this is deeper. This is about commitment. This is about through sickness and in health, this ups and downs, it's a covenant, it's, a, it's an agreement, and there's a purpose to it, right? Yeah. And, and, I, and we're, we're constantly taught to chase our happiness, chase our bliss, do what we find passionate or something like that. Yeah. And I think we need to shift that to uh, living a purpose-filled life, right? And that yeah. involves ups and downs. We embrace the sadness just like we embrace the happiness. It's all going towards a greater purpose and a greater value, our, our, our deepest value, right? And, and that's how marriage should be viewed. It's contributed. It's, it's contributing to our this greater purpose. It's not about bliss, happiness, or love. All those things are present there and can be present and should be present, but though that's not the underlying thing. This is a commitment to sharing your life, not just feelings with each other. Yeah. And I think it directly mirrors the problem in individuals' lives, right? The approach they have to their own life where they whim worship and they just go about doing what they want to do any given day without thinking about um, their future and, and what they actually want to achieve in their life. If they don't have that approach to themselves, obviously they don't, they don't have that approach to marriage. But I think a, a large point to hit home is that it seems that that approach, I mean, that approach is incentivized by the state generally because the state will take care of you it doesn't matter what you do how hard you fall on your face literally or figuratively we will take care of you but that seems to be particularly entrenched in marriage law from my understanding based on this conversation and particularly entrenched for females within marriage law that they um they don't have to take responsibility because there's the addition the added layer of they like they get the power over the children and they'll have some implicit power over the men in that marriage so it seems like it's it's 
doubly incentivized or dis whatever that uh, I misspoke, but like it's it's worse with respect to marriage than how bad it is with respect to individuals. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And you know, anyone who has gone through divorce, I mean, I've I've gone through a divorce, and it's it it was deeply painful and humiliating. You know, I I was, um, uh, you know, I was a victim of infidelity, and um, you know, the marriage dissolved, and I was out on, you know, I was I was couch surfing and basically handing over my entire paycheck, um, and it took me years and years to to get into a position where I had any kind of financial comfort at all. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it, and, and at the same time, I experienced the, the whole cut off from my kids and having no recourse and having the well poisoned against me um, because I'm not in the home. And so it's like a self-perpetuating uh, thing. It's, it's very painful for fathers that go through that. Um, and still you're vilified, just like writ large, not only by the potential by the mother, yeah. but by society, like you are the the bad guy. Yeah, it's just like the default mode in in society. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're gonna change all that. Yeah. So, what is the main like? This has given. I've not thought about this topic at all. So, I'm I'm probably gonna have more questions to do some sort of follow up episode later. But what are you hoping the main takeaways are from this? Because for me, it's that okay, clearly the two sides should be treated equally. I think that's just yep. inherent and true. Um, you know, there is something to be said for like a very young child. There are, you know, there is science to be dealt with around the relationship between a very young child and its mother, I think, um, but we won't get into that now. But other than that, uh, what else are the main things yeah, well, I, I, it's essentially equality under the law, right? I mean, the law should apply equally to everyone. It's uh, getting government out of this. It's about promoting a an environment where people are free to take on personal responsibility and suffer the consequences of taking on that personal responsibility as well as the benefits. And, you know, ultimately, I think that, um, you know, I've always said that a libertarian society where you're free to sin and free to pursue vice is actually uh, results in a more socially conservative society in terms of personal behavior because um, people tend to make more responsible decisions, more conservative decisions in their own life, uh, honor commitments, uh, become family oriented, all that sort of thing, when they uh, have to suffer the consequences of failing to to meet their obligations and and rather than the rest of society having to uh, bear the consequences of your personal sins, I guess. So, so chicken or egg, do we fix marriage and then that inherently fixes the state or do we start to fix the state and at some point that'll make people take more responsibility and fix marriage? Well, I don't know that you can fix either of those things or that you have to do one or the other and can't do both. Um, you know, I, I think the best you can do is promote these ideas. And, and you know, at the very least, I think that talking about this and explaining how, you know, had I known some of this stuff, um, had I understood, if, if I'd listened to this podcast as a young man, it might have made me think twice about en entering so uh, cavalierly into a marriage Um based on all these assumptions and presuppositions and cultural ideas about love and romance and staying together forever. And, you know, I, I, at the very least, I certainly would have had <laughs> deep conversations 
um, with the person I was going to marry about what this was going to mean and how some of these things were going to play out. And, and, you know, I might never have, have made the mistake I did of marrying the woman I did. Right. And, and I think, um, so at the very least, I think if, if people, if our audience members and especially young guys and and girls too, I mean, you know, I, we, we haven't even touched on how this, um, is, is ter- a terrible environment for women. Um, you know, but if, if our listeners understand this stuff, they can potentially avoid the pitfalls that our system creates. You know, we, we can do the same thing when we talk about economics. You know, if, if we can understand that the cause of the business cycle is all government intervention, we can talk about how we want to get rid of that economic intervention that creates booms and busts. But ultimately, if we can't get deal with that, at least as a as an individual, I can understand how the system affects my my financial decisions, and I can prepare for uh, catastrophe and understand it when it happens, right? And I think the same yeah. thing kind of applies here. So I think it it gives people the tools to take personal responsibility in their own lives if they understand how the system is working against them, and in destructive ways they can shield themselves from that. And I, I think it it is worthwhile still getting married and making that commitment and you can do that uh, you can do all these things have serious talks uh, with your with your fiance about what it's going to mean all the important things and and you know the love and romance is, is there for courting and and all that stuff and that's great but when it comes to marriage you you have to talk like you're entering almost into a business agreement and and have a sober conversation and talk deeply about these and work through disagreements and get on the same page and understand what what's going to happen if if the marriage uh, dissolves and and all those kinds of things that stuff needs to be talked about and 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 you can do that you can take that personal responsibility on right now regardless of what the state does you don't have to fall into uh, just being a kind of a blind uh, pawn in in this chess game being played by the state you can you can live your own life um but and, and you can you can be cautious right yeah absolutely and i mean it definitely will factor in when i eventually i'm in a relationship looking to get married but i think i mean i just can't believe how unequal it is and right like equality under the law is supposed to be the thing that we're fighting for the most and so to know that it's clearly not the case is quite alarming to me as well yeah. And, you know, to be honest with you, even though I've gone through all this, personally experienced it and, and you know, understood the the gist of, of how things were skewed, it wasn't until I really started doing some research for this platform that I understand the specific mechanisms and the degree to which things are so stacked against men and, and things are so unfair and, and how horrendous this is. I mean, you know, we, we have ex- when there's so much injustice in this realm, it becomes it. it becomes as ephemeral as the air we breathe, right? We don't even notice it. And it wasn't until I read through um, some of this stuff by a legal scholar who outlined it for me in a a dispassionate way that I realized the grave injustice that I had been subjugated to, my kids had been subjugated to, and the rest of society is subjugated to as well. Yeah, Well, well, we'll fix it one of these days. Absolutely. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Appreciate it. I appreciate you. Oh, man.